0: Hey, science fans. One thing we don't get to talk about enough on this show is environmental concerns, ecology, resources, that sort of thing. I wish we we had more on, on this topic on the show. Fortunately, I found a new podcast that I believe you guys will enjoy called Waterline. Waterline podcast is everything related to water how to make sustainable irrigation can water bring peace how do you uh, keep water clean and, and safe and how much money does does our current water system cost in the u.s what changes can we make and how we use water i just listened to a fantastic episode called water in peace hydropolitics it was all about um, the many different conflicts over different regions of water we've drawn all of these arbitrary lines for our kind of political regions and one thing that we didn't really factor in when doing that was water sources so now there's all of these uncomfortable to say the least conflicts uh, where all of these areas overlap over water sources fantastic episode the Waterline Podcast is an initiative of Israel NewTech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. So check it out for everything you need to know about the economics, political, social, behavioral, technological, and environmental aspects of water. Search for Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast everybody. This is Shane Moss, your friend, your host, student, teacher, mentor, apprentice Shane Moss. I um uh, thanks for downloading, thanks for listening and thanks so much for um the all the reviews I've been getting, especially those iTunes reviews. Help me so much and I I check it all the time like a maniac cuz each time I get a new one. Um, from one of you guys. It makes my whole uh, week and uh, because iTunes puts so much precedent on the actual written reviews, rating it with five star. That's fantastic. But they also look at those written reviews and that's how they judge uh, it, what content they recommend to new listeners and all of that good stuff. And so that helps me out. That helps me get new listeners, which then um, in turn helps uh, me get good guests, uh, which, which this is one of, one of the hardest things about putting all of this together is finding good guests for me to interview and you guys to listen to, and that helps me tremendously. Speaking of good guests, today's guest is uh, an amazing young man. I stopped through Chicago to talk to Adam Waits, who is at the Kellogg School of Management at Northwestern University. Uh, he's a psychologist there and he's into cognitive neuroscience and um, understanding uh, not only how the mind works but how we think about other minds which is really cool and he's uh, also bold enough to um, study a lot of uh, very interesting moral and ethical questions and uh, he's great he's won awards and Prizes. He was the first person to receive twice the Theoretical Innovation Prize from the Society of Personality and Social Psychology. And he's just a really super cool guy. And uh, came and stopped by my comedy condo uh, actually for a visit. And we had this wonderful conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm in Chicago this week, and I'm here with my amazing guest, Adam Waits. who's a psychologist at Northwestern University. How are you doing, Adam? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for making the three-block hike to <laughs> the crappy condo that uh, that the club put me up in. Um, no uh, problem. I not name the name of the club. <laughs> yeah, it's not the... Uh, it's okay. It's a bed. Not too bad. Not it's, too uh, bad. There's a kitchen. Yeah, I, I, I like that. This is the first time I've had a guest come to me. I um I always offer that as an option, but I think um most people are worried I'm going to kidnap them or something. <laughs> it's, it's like a strange thing getting a um email out of the blue from um guests. So I appreciate your bravery. No problem. So the, there's a a few different things um that I found interesting right off the bat which is um this idea of how um uh, we all and I I'm probably going to be um talking with your uh with your colleague or your um mentor mentor uh about this a bit but the idea of, of we kind of think that everyone else is stupid. We just <laughs> all seem to think this about other people all of the time.
1: So I'm really happy that you framed it that way because that allows me to make an important clarification, right. which is that we don't think everyone is stupid. Right. So, uh, so Nick Epley and I and our uh, fantastic colleague, Juliana Schroeder, uh, wrote a chapter where we laid out basically a theoretical idea called the lesser mind's problem. And the lesser mind's problem is a reference to the other mind's problem, which is this old unsolvable philosophical question. The other mind's problem, I can't remember who was the first to sort of discuss this. Um, One of the greats, uh, I'm sure, uh, talked about just the difficulty of knowing another mind. And the other mind's problem essentially says, if we can't experience another mind how can we know that other people have minds at all and this seems you know a bit silly in 2014 because despite not uh, fully being able to inhabit another mind we're very good at getting into other minds either through our own egocentric projection well those people probably think what i think or stereotypes these people tend to think this way or just having a conversation with someone. Oh, now I know what's in this person's mind. So the other mind's problem turns out not to be too much of a problem. What turns out to be a problem is what we're calling the lesser mind's problem. And the lesser mind's problem goes a little bit something like this. We're extremely aware of our own minds. Our own minds, it's like there's a spotlight shining on our own minds. So we understand the profundity and the depth and the comprehensiveness of our own minds. We're very aware that we have intentions and feelings and thoughts and desires and beliefs. But yes, while it's true uh, that we can't get into uh, another mind as vividly as we can get into our own minds, then we tend to assume that other minds are simply lesser, slightly dimmer, slightly uh, simpler, slightly less comprehensive, and perhaps a bit less intelligent. But it's important that this isn't simply the idea that we think others are stupider than we are. It's that we think others have uh, less good parts of the mind and bad parts of the mind as well. So we think uh, we ourselves are more prone to experiencing all these negative things like guilt and shame um, and negative emotions whereas others simply experience, experience these negative emotions to a lesser degree because we simply can't see their minds as vividly as we do our own so that's sort of the lesser minds problem
0: yeah well it's interesting because i you know in your own brain like i know that all all of my cognitive processes that went into in the research that i went into to to Um, phrasing the question like, "Hey, we think everyone's stupid," and I knew I was kind of just setting you up, but you don't necessarily know what I went through, and 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 so that can seem like, "Oh, I'm just asking like this simple question," not knowing that you know I went through this process to try to set you up, and that's, I mean, it seems like an impossible thing to get past. Right. Well, you know, I, I before we talk about why
1: it's impossible to get past or how we might make it possible to get past it, I think you raised something really interesting with your example right there. And it touches on some work I'm doing with a a student uh, of mine, which is that um, when it comes to the creative process, which you're of course familiar with, when we create something, when we are engaged in the creative process, when any individual is engaged in the creative process, we are intimately aware of the effort that goes into creating that idea, whether it's uh, a joke or a logo for a brand or a song lyric or um, something artistic that we want to paint, usually this is a very thought-laden process that goes through many steps, many trials and errors. Uh, a lot of mental work goes into creating a creative moment or a creative idea but when we see others engage in something creative we only see the finished product right right. we only see the perfectly told joke we only see the final canvas we see the photograph and so we have this tendency to assume that when it comes to creativity god it takes me a long time to come up with that creative moment and uh, takes a lot of mental effort and sophistication but for others they must have just had that eureka moment. So this is a phenomenon. You know, these are all unpublished studies that we're calling sort of the eureka bias. That when we see creativity mm. in others, we think, "God, that guy's that's just a funny guy. That's just a talented guy." Uh, yeah,
0: it's so fun. It happens so much because I do. I put so much work and effort into uh, hoping to uh, to get a little creative spark here right. and there that I then craft and try out a few times and. I'm going around the country talking with scientists trying to gather information to come up with new ideas. Right. And then and and it, what goes into that like I suffer for these babies. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And right, then right, and right. then I put it out there and and to some people either it's just like, that's eh, it's just a joke who cares." Or it's just like, "Wow, this guy's such a genius. He's just coming up with all this stuff right off the top of my head." People are always like, Oh, I might come to the show tomorrow. Yeah. Is it is it gonna be uh, some of the same jokes or yeah. it's like no, it's gonna be all the same <laughs> yeah, jokes. Right, this right. takes a really long time right. to put this together.
1: I mean, it's it's similar to this idea that we have, you know, Malcolm Gladwell called it the talent myth, right? That um, there are just individuals who are just innately talented when in fact so much of this comes from effort and mental effort. And because mm-hmm. We only see that mental effort when we are coming up with creative ideas. We don't see the mental effort when the comedian or the artist or the photographer or the musician is sitting there thinking and contemplating. We assume that those ideas are just instantaneous eureka moments. And you know, we find that very interesting. It's an example of the lesser minds problem where we're sort of uh, you know, thinking that others are better. At creative stuff than ourselves because we say, "Gosh, they just thought of that note. They thought of that joke right on the spot." Whereas for me to come up with a joke, I'd have to really sift through what I think is funny, and it's also you know similar to. I remember growing up in uh, Minneapolis, we we would always have to take trips to the uh, Walker Art Center and the Art Institute, and all, all the kids we'd see the modern art and. You know, we would be totally unimpressed we'd, it would be like a line <laughs> on a canvas yeah. and we, you know you, everyone has this experience we'd all think oh you know we could do that cuz you only see the finished product you you don't see all of the mental work that that goes into creating the perfectly crafted line on the canvas so you know i think to some extent people can grow out of this eureka bias but because we don't experience the creative process that others go through, we tend to think that any creative expression is just this eureka moment.
0: I always tell people because sometimes uh, you know people ask, "How do you get into it?" I I've always thought maybe I be a comedian, blah blah blah. I tell everyone, I'm like, "Great, go do an open mic." I encourage yeah. you to. Yeah. Uh, the more people that actually give it a try. The more people will appreciate what I do, right. They'll, they'll <laughs> yeah. realize in a hurry how much work goes into it and how hard it is,
1: right? I mean, it's it's also this, um, you know, there's actually kind of this other great work by a woman named Jennifer Mueller about sort of the bias against uh, creativity that people sort of see creativity as as you know a lesser mode of production, and I think that's because people don't understand. That creativity takes effort, just like other sorts of production. In fact, you know, in many ways, it may take more effort. Um, so yeah, I'm not representing her work well, but uh, she she has some great work. On yeah. this, this phenomenon.
0: Well, I mean, I've been talking a bit about this recently too, and and just about and a lot of a lot of like that creative spark. Yeah. Comes from. After you've already done the effort, and then you're like just sitting there or in the shower or washing dishes or something, and there's all these exactly. unconscious processes going on that all of a sudden everything just clicks and comes together exactly. out of nowhere and and you think, "Oh well, that person's that artist they're, they're so lazy or something right, but some of that is just a part of it complements the effortful process and and, uh, and and those things have to combine together, yeah
1: it's like you know when we w- see improv, we think that and it's true, wow, that person just came up with that joke on the spot. Someone threw out something in the crowd, you know Eleanor Roosevelt uh, in a tutu, <laughs> okay. and uh, you know the guy just uh, woman makes it happen, and it's really funny. We think this is you know spontaneous on the spot talent. But you know what we don't see is all the hours of practice that goes yeah. into these creative expressions. So it's we think this is an interesting manifestation of this lesser minds problem that we're very aware of the real mental effort that we go through to produce uh, creative ideas and creative moments, and uh, because we're unaware and we just simply can't see, it's a vision problem. We can't see into other people's minds uh, that they're going through this process when they create these moments as well we we just think that they're spontaneous you know they have these eureka moments
0: another bit of um work that i thought was kind of interesting regarding kind of um our our misperception of of what people are going through cognitively compared to us Mm -hmm. and um and also I, I guess a, it's a, a little bit of a taboo subject in a way just because it's regarding in and out group mm-hmm. kind of behavior, but mm-hmm. the, the stuff about um, um, how when, uh, when we have some conflict with an out group, we think our conflict yes. is based on this idea that we love our in group so much i'll let you take it from here
1: yeah so this is very recent work that i've done with uh, leanne young and jeremy gingis and some basic uh sort of asymmetric perception that we've documented that bits and pieces of this phenomenon are out in the literature and have been for many years but we just put this all together so basically i tell the story like this you know where does intergroup group conflict come from, be it Israelis and Palestinians, Democrats and Republicans, people of different races, uh, different countries at war? Well, it comes from two motives. Uh, in-group love, our tendency to want to protect and show compassion for and empathize with our own group, and out-group hate, uh, the tendency to find other uh, out-group members disgusting and to want to uh, behave aggressively toward them and to eradicate them. And... Now, years and decades of research has shown you know, why do intergroup conflicts actually happen? What is the predominant motive? Is it in-group love or is it out-group hate that drives conflict? It happens to be in-group love uh, pretty much in a landslide. So when you look at why conflict actually happens, you know, this is documented in ethnographic research by Marilyn Brewer, um, you know, this is uh, determined in lab studies or by a guy named Nir Halivi, where you play economic games that allow you to protect your own group or aggress toward the outgroup. Um, in group love dominates, and there's even recent research suggesting that in group love uh, develops by around age six, whereas outgroup uh, hate takes a little bit longer. You get outgroup hate around age eight. So, in group love is really the dominant. Uh, reason why conflict occurs, but what do we see when we're in conflict? We see all this popular rhetoric of they hate us or why they hate us, or uh, you recall the George W. Bush line that they hate us for our freedom. <laughs> so this is this uh, strange sort of you know disconnect between why in group, sorry, why intergroup conflict actually emerges. Uh, this is out of in-group love
0: we love our country yeah we're going to war because we need to protect our freedoms exactly. they're going to war with us because they hate they our hate country us. and they hate our
1: right friends. right so so we're very good at recognizing uh in-group love in our own groups but we're not so good at recognizing in-group love in our out groups um and uh so we just took it upon ourselves to document this phenomenon you know that the other um sort of person whose work really inspired this is a really interesting cognitive anthropologist by the name of Scott Atron. And Scott Atron studies why people join uh, terrorist cells like Al-Qaeda or ISIS and things like this. And what he wrote in his uh, book, uh, I think it was a 2008 book, sort of documenting his research in the introduction, he writes about, and you know, this is not to... uh, put too nice of a spin on these guys but uh, he writes about why do people join these groups well it's typically not primarily to kill these are guys who play soccer together they're real bands of brothers they join these groups for affiliative motives and uh, affiliative motives they want to belong and they want to connect with each other and yet you know when we think about al qaeda we we never think about all of that yeah, we stuff. don't think of we, them
0: as like these underdogs. Right, <laughs> like right. The, the ragtag group of misfits going <laughs> right. up against the rich high school. <laughs> exactly.
1: Exactly, exactly. <laughs> but,
0: but I mean, it, the, I think the importance of under of, of having, having empathy for the people that you are in conflict with and the people that you hate is because you have to understand where they're coming from. Exactly. If, if you want to stop that, you still have to understand what's creating and causing it in the first place. This should not be a controversial thing to talk about. I mean, it's so irritating.
1: Right, right. so so we'll get there in one second. So we simply did a number of studies uh, with Democrats and Republicans and with Israelis and Palestinians asking them, you know, you're involved in conflict. For Democrats and Republicans, we said, you know, you're involved in this conflict between the two parties. Why is your party involved in this conflict? Why is the other party involved in this conflict? And they say, well we're involved in it because of compassion for our own side, not so much because of hatred toward the other side. And, uh, you know, people on the other side say, no, we're involved in compassion toward our own side and less than hatred toward the other side. Then when you ask them, well, why is the other party involved in this conflict? They say, well, because they hate us and not so much that they love their own. And you see the same pattern with Palestinians and Israelis. Why do You know, you ask Israelis, why do uh, Palestinians support firing rockets? Is it because of hate more than, or is it because of love? And they say, oh, it's more so because of hate. And then then you say, well, why are Israelis supportive of this conflict and uh, supportive of violence toward Palestine? And they say, well, it's out of love for Israel and not so much hate. And then you ask the Palestinians and you get a very similar response. So we see kind of this consistent
0: Hey, asymmetry. we're all wrong
1: together, everybody. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then what you were pointing to, and actually uh Nick Epley talks about this in his book, Mindwise, is that, you know, why is this important? Well, it's important. This asymmetry is important because it determines how people want to deal with conflict. If you think that the other side is just barbaric and hateful, I mean it's really a form of dehumanizing, saying that. They just hate us. They don't love their own. They don't care for their children. They don't go to funerals like we do. If you just see the other side bar- as as barbaric, then what do you have to do to deal with them? Uh, any Shock
0: barbaric and- means necessary exactly. to get rid of them.
1: Shock and awe. Shock and awe is really the uh sort of rational response. But if we can sort of uh debias people and we tried to we've done this in a couple studies if you can debias people a little bit and say oh they're to make people say oh the outgroup is driven by in-group love just like us then i think uh, people would say well let's negotiate let's use some diplomacy let's use some deterrence it turns out their motives are similar to our motives and uh you know perhaps there's some common ground here so you know we're just scratching the surface on this phenomenon but you really nailed why this is so important because it um, determines how we're gonna deal with the outgroup.
0: So, uh, how, how do you think? How do you think this could be primed to um, prime people to kind of? I mean, is it is it just through education trying to get people to? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's 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 all of twenty people reading these papers. You know how how do you? How do you spread the word? How do you prime people into? Well, first of all, you're wrong. There's about 14 people reading this paper. <laughs> but um, well, a- that's why, uh, why I'm doing this podcast so that Thank another 14 people fantastic. will, will fantastic. <laughs> understand it.
1: So the question is, how do we debias people? How do we change people's beliefs? Right? Yeah. That, that's the question. Yeah, yeah. So, so one thing that we've done, and this is only amongst. Uh, Democrats and Republicans, and you know our sample was actually about eighty percent Democrat. Uh, one thing you can do is you pay people. You pay people to say, "All right, we're we want you to be accurate when you're judging the the other side and evaluating the other side, and we'll pay you for being accurate. We'll compare your responses to the out group, what they actually say they're driven by, and if you're accurate, we'll pay you." A little bit more money and when we incentivize people to be accurate they become accurate they I think you know they use some cognitive effort they think well what's the other side going to say they're going to say that they're driven by love more than hate so that's what I'm going to say and then this goes beyond cheap talk because we see that you know once we've incentivized people to be accurate in predicting what is the other side actually driven by then they feel more optimistic about the conflict, and they see the other side as less changed, or sorry, less fixed in their ways, and more changeable. So we've only shown this amongst Democrats and Republicans. The question is, you know, what can we do in a really intractable conflict like Israel and Palestine? And we have we have a few ideas. So um, I should mention every conflict. You know, This is sort of a point that we forget, but a colleague of mine, Noor Kattali, uh, has done some very great work showing that every conflict is not a conflict between sides of equal power. Whether it's Democrat and Republican, Israel and Palestine, one group is the high power group and one group is the low power group. So you know, I don't think it's too controversial to say that in Israel and Palestine, Palestine has... Fewer resources, less land. Uh, they're the low power group. I, you know that might be controversial to say, but I think a lot of people on both sides will agree with that. Uh, in the Democrat and Republican conflict, you know, despite Senate, House, whatever, by virtue of Barack Obama being president, the Republicans are actually the low power group. And what I'm saying this is that when we think about how to change people's minds in conflict what might work for the high-power group isn't going to work for the low-power group, and vice versa. So um, you know, another friend of mine, Emil Bruneau, has done some really interesting research um, with Rebecca Sachs showing that um, you know, in, in conflicts like the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict, um, I- Israelis uh, really benefit from taking the perspective Of the other side okay so perspective taking is really beneficial but on the side of the low-power group uh, the Palestinians um, what's beneficial for them is perspective giving okay so giving their perspective to the other side in a brief conversation so I just think uh, you know we're entering into this age of of really new interesting research all of this prior research not all of it but a lot of it on intergroup conflict has uh, sort of offered blanket prescriptions. You know, We need to get both sides to work together. Or we need to invoke a common enemy or things like that. And all of those things work well. But then when we look at the nuances of conflict and say, hey, these, these groups aren't starting from an equal place of power, we might want to you know massage the bias out of the high power group in one way and massage mm-hmm. the bias out of the low power group in another way
0: that is very very interesting i mean you can apply that to race conflict oh, to everything all across the board that's that's amazing just to the I, I i had a friend telling me oh shoot what was the name of this site it was it um, a, a friend recently telling me about this um i thought was kind of interesting it was called um and I, i'm not sure how i feel about um the prison system and everything i'm, mm-hmm. I'm not making like a, any political statement but just <laughs> but but it just has to do with what we're saying yeah it's called weareallcriminals.com, and what they did was they had people that were like you know um successful or respected people or whatever you'd have someone like me be like hey i've done I am holding up this thing. I did psychedelic mushrooms, right? And then you have someone in jail that did the same thing and they tell their story, and the, but they got busted uh, for it and now they're in jail for I love um, it. that same thing. And it's, a, it's just a really interesting thing of getting us on the outside yeah. thinking about, hey, we've all done something yeah. wrong in our lives and getting people that are um, maybe the victims of overly harsh penalties, uh, uh, giving them a voice to advertise.
1: Well, I really like that because it's so you know that exact scenario is very consistent with this high power, low power uh, differential and perspective taking versus perspective giving. So you know, I think for the people who are lucky not to have gone to jail for you know, minor offenses or uh, you know nonviolent. Uh, offenses um, you know I think engaging in a program like this I'd have to see it uh, what it really re- uh, requires you to do is to take the perspective of wow you know I did that and I could have gone to jail whereas uh, like you said for the person in, in jail it sort of gives them voice um, and you know I'm not again we're just talking about this in the context of the research Um uh, we're not um, right. suggesting we you know, open up all the jails. Right, right. I'm not saying that. But but I mean, it's totally kind of consistent with this thinking that, well, how do we reduce conflict? How do we reduce difference? There's plenty. There are some blanket solutions out there that I think are very effective. But I'm really a big fan of this newer research um, that suggests we have to look at the power differentials. And by the way, in our own research, in at least one of the studies, we found that uh, Republicans were admitting to outgroup hate as much as in-group love. Um, so they weren't uh, necessarily showing that biased attribution toward their own. And then Palestinians also um, said that they were almost driven as much by hate as, as by love. And I don't think this is anything to do with Republicans or Palestinians as people. It, it's the virtue of, of their um, place uh, in in the sort of power structure, that when you're the low power group, you're gonna be angrier. I think that's that's fairly natural.
0: I was a teenager yeah, right, right, <laughs> was exactly. not in the in group.
1: Exactly. I know
0: all about those feelings.
1: Exactly. And you know what's more, you know this is uh, this is kind of wild speculation here. Now that I think about it, we always see uh, the high power group saying. We are in this conflict for love more than hate, to a very robust degree. And you know, the more that I think about it, this is great because I'm getting ideas um, while while we're talking. Well, I'm here right? for. Thanks. <laughs> um, you know, I think when you're in power, you need to justify being in power, and particularly when there's conflict, that sort of threatens the stability of your system. So you even more so have to justify. Uh, why it's good that you're in power. So I I have a sense that our high-power groups, in this case Democrats and Israelis, just within these conflicts, um, might need to justify their position by saying, you know, we're the honorable group. We are driven by love more so than
0: hate. And I'm going to protect you and provide for you you jobs, whatever it might be. Exactly. But
1: but I do want to offer... um, this is really kind of my favorite topic these days. Um, um, I do want to offer one other potential mechanism by which this finding occurs, that we tend to see our own group is driven by love more than hate and the other side driven by hate more than love. I think a lot of this um, comes from what uh, one psychologist referred to as a sampling bias. So we simply get to sample quite a few behaviors of our in-group in daily life life. So I'm a Northwestern professor. I get to see a lot of uh, my in-group on a daily basis, other Northwestern professors, and I see them engaged in acts of care and compassion and affiliation and love and loyalty. When do I see my out-group? When do I see the rival university or the rival country or the rival faction? Well, I only see them at moments of conflict, I only see them when they're engaged in uh, hating behavior. I never see them when they go back to their own and they're engaged in affiliation. I don't get to sample those behaviors. So it's also, again, a you vision You only see problem.
0: strangers in the street that are butting their way through the crowd to exactly. cut through the line. Exactly.
1: Whatever. Exactly. So I think a lot of this is like other things that I was talking about a vision problem. We see our own group engaged in acts of love. We just by virtue of you know vision we we just
0: see the outgroup engaged in those acts to a lesser degree and um you did some i i was thinking about well yeah, whatever we'll, we'll get into it I, I want to make sure we save room to talk about robots oh, as yeah. well. But yeah. um, this is but, like the curse of my research.
1: Uh, <laughs> I haven't
0: got to talk robots uh, with no, anyone on the podcast. Of course, of course. You, you did this to yourself. You I studied know. robots. I know, I did. It. Um, so, so, uh, hey, but uh, let's stay on the subject for a moment. You, sure. you did some well, and and um, we'll transition a bit too. You did some work with um. I saw you write some stuff about things being sacred yes. and kind of bartering with yeah. sacredness. Yeah. So um,
1: this is not research that I have uh, done much of on my own, but this happens to be research that I'm a huge uh, fan of, again, by a lot of people that I, I've mentioned, actually. My, my co-author Jeremy Gingis and Scott Atron and, and Doug Medine and others. And, uh, I do think it's a very important idea, uh, particularly in the 21st century, which is, the, uh, you know, the basic idea is that some things are sacred. Okay. Now, uh, what does that
0: mean? Okay. It's not, I, yeah, I'd love for you to define that. And I would like to Talk maybe a little bit about how things become that way, too, which I know is like a bit off topic from what I've read of yours, but anyway no
1: no I, it's something I'm starting to think about yeah so what does it mean to be sacred? Well, it gets a bit cyclical in the definition, and I'm, I'm probably not going to do justice to the work on on sacredness, but uh, sacred things are things that we would refuse to give up for any amount of money, so um, people's religion, um, uh, people's firstborn uh, son or daughter, uh, certain historical uh, places, certain religious places and artifacts. These are things that we would not give up for any amount of money. And some very interesting research uh, has looked at the context of sacred values in uh, negotiations. And what happens is when you negotiate, negotiation is typically sort of a market activity. A market activity meaning that what you're doing is you're talking money, you're talking costs and benefits, you're in a market mindset that uh, I'm trying to get something in the market of goods, this other person might be trying to get the same thing, Uh, let's compromise. And You can make various offers in a negotiation. You know, if you do this, we'll pay you that. If you give me this, uh, we'll do this. Uh, And when you offer people money uh, for something that's sacred, this is pretty much the worst thing that you can do because it's like offering money for someone's uh, firstborn child
0: it's outrageous I, you know every time i'm on the street i'm always offering people to buy their babies <laughs> off of them and they give me the strangest looks right. and i always wondered why that was
1: right that's like my, my favorite scene in blues brothers when they offer money for the little girl uh. <laughs> we're in chicago around the corner from uh, you know the old uh, second city hangout so that's just a little nice. reference there nice. um but Right. This is the most outrageous thing that you can do is uh, offer money for something that people consider sacred. So, you know, in the context of Palestinian and Israeli negotiations, there are many things that people consider to be sacred. You know, Jerusalem, uh, for example, is sacred. And if you offer people virtually any amount of money, well, all of a sudden, this is an insult. You've imposed this secular value of money on my sacred value of my religion and my history. So you get people more supportive of violence, more angry and more outraged. Uh, when, you know, if you just went by, you know, how should we think about basic costs and benefits? You would expect, well, the more you pay people, the more they should give in. No, the more you pay someone to take something sacred off their hands, the more you're going to upset them. And uh, this is known as uh, a taboo trade off okay when you 're asked to sort of trade something sacred for something secular now, why is this uh, an important topic in the twenty first century well, what i didn't uh, mention and what i don 't know if you mentioned in my introduction is that i i 'm a professor in a business school, and so I teach uh, m b a students primarily and uh, when you're in the world of business and in the world of capitalism and in the world of markets, uh, you're in this market mindset, rightfully so, where uh, you're asked to put a dollar amount on many things. You're asked to put a dollar amount on the stock price. Uh, what is the IPO going to look like? Uh, you know, How much are we going to sell this or that product for? How much does this service cost? Yet, there are certain things even in modern 21st century American Western society that money cannot and should not buy. So Michael Sandel has a great book called uh, What Money Can't Buy that um, is all about this idea that uh, our society in the 21st century has increasingly become marketized, that things that used to not be able to pay for, things that were ostensibly sacred, um, now you can pay for them and 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 you can pay for anything he talks about how you can pay for someone to stand online for you to get tickets to Shakespeare in the park when Shakespeare in the park the purpose of Shakespeare in the park is that it's open to everyone, and you know it's an equal opportunity system, but um you know you can pay for line standers. you can pay for. All sorts of things. You can pay for access to the carpool lane, even if you're a single driver. And he talks about sort of the problems of imposing markets on uh, things that used to be considered sacred. Not, of course, carpool lanes and, and Shakespeare in the Park. But you know, what about paying kids to uh, get an education, paying kids to read and learn? You know, are, is, are we going to treat education as something that can simply be bought and sold, or? is that more of a sacred right. So I like uh talking about this with the MBAs. Uh, our MBAs are very thoughtful and I think this really resonates with them, but you can see a lot of sort of uh the greatest uh gaffes and errors in recent business history have resulted from people putting a dollar amount on say a human life. Uh when you know, the ex- the kind of paradigmatic example of this is uh, ford with the pinto so ford produced this car lovely car called the pinto that um the fuel tank was in the rear so um which they you know, developed to keep costs down um, they needed to you know design the car in this way uh what that meant though was that there was a chance that if someone rear-ended the pinto uh the pinto would explode and the pinto uh, did explode. And, and during the, the court case, one of the high profile court cases surrounding uh, uh, death related to the Ford Pinto, Ford basically said, no, we did the cost benefit analysis. We, we weren't negligent in this case. We calculated, you know, how much it would cost to uh, uh, redesign the car and how many people uh, would die as a result of this and how much that would cost us. And, you know, I'm character caricaturing this a bit but people all of a sudden said wait you put a dollar amount on uh how many people would die you know that's outrageous so you know we want to avoid that type of thinking i think in the 21st century
0: yeah regarding sacred stuff i mean it got me thinking and this is kind of off topic and i and i hope i don't i sometimes worry i'm going to take a quick trip into crazy town (laughs) but um should be fun I, I mean it's interesting what we can i get thinking of your child as sacred yeah. i get thinking of someone else's life as sacred yeah. but i don't get how all of these other things become sacred a place can become yeah. sacred a religion can become yeah. sacred uh, uh, our healthcare system is somehow this sacred thing and how does that happen I, I mean, I almost wonder if for some of these things, if, because the irony is, is, say, like the Constitution or something, that's a sacred thing. Yeah. Well, this is this incredibly complicated thing that no one's really an expert on and, yeah. and, and knows a damn about, yeah. especially the people that claim <laughs> to know the most about it. And these are the people that are the most sure of themselves it's almost like the more complicated it is the more questions the more sure of the and i wonder if it's just you know we're we're all trying to do the best we can to you would think from an objective from a rational point of view yeah. your brain would want to gather as much information as possible to make the best judgment but it doesn't seem like that happens a lot of times yeah. and i do think your brain does have to pick and choose you know, there's an infinite amount of information in any situation yeah. that's being funneled through three pounds of stupid, and <laughs> I think that at some point you do always have to you have to throw up your hands a little bit, yeah, and go, oh well, this is this, and I know that even though you don't know that, and and I wonder if that's what's causing things to be sacred sometimes because it's like, what do you, what do you mean, the afterlife is sacred? You have no idea what the afterlife is. It's afterlife. Yeah. who knows anything about the healthcare system? I can't. I've tried to research this stuff, and no, like uh, Obama has a whole team of people trying to explain this to people, and no one can explain what's going on. How is it sacred? There's no way you can know exactly. Well,
1: one, I think you just laid out a really interesting research program, which is how do things become sacred. And I think you know there are people working on this. There's a paper by Gregory Burns uh, on you know, what are the uh, brain mechanisms involved in coding sacred values. Um, but this is a, a topic that I'm very interested in. And you know, I think as you're talking, you know, I think you presented at least one hypothesis, which might might be interesting to explore. Maybe it's the inexplicable things that we can't easily uh, put. A number on or that we can't easily quantify that say well you know this is beyond numbers so maybe there's something else to it something uh, some sort of mystical magical quality to it that it's just sacred maybe you know to use one of John Haidt's terms we become dumbfounded Um, you know Haidt does all uh, uh, all these classic studies where he asks uh, people if he can purchase their soul Uh, from them and uh, the people's the look on the people's faces uh you know some people do it but a lot of people are outraged they they are asked to sign a sheet of paper that says this is in no way binding at all
0: what does he pay for a soul i don't
1: remember these were older studies so maybe in the early 90s factor in inflation um (laughs) you'll have to ask uh John Heided's. I would it's,
0: sell my soul for such a small amount of money. <laughs> yeah, right,
1: right, right, sure. <laughs> but um
0: Yeah, I you already know, have, I'm pretty sure. Right, right, uh, of course.
1: Go on. Of course. No. Um, but it's interesting because you know this is a perfect example of some other <laughs> thing within us overriding our rational selves to say this is just a piece of paper. Um, so how do things become sacred? Maybe it's the inexplicable that becomes sacred. I think you know what else makes things sacred? Well, when everyone agrees that something's sacred or uh when something has contact with a, uh, a famous person, it becomes sacred I have uh, you know a baseball cap signed by one of my favorite musicians that I keep in a box and I you know, rarely take it out, even to look at it. Um, I have a pair. Who was of, it? Uh, Face Killer, actually. Oh, nice. Um, from Wu Tang Clan. Um, all right. Yeah, uh, that I'm you know, do it. that that's a sacred possession. Or uh, I bought a pair of shoes that I've never worn. That these are, um, the shoes is a special edition of Kevin Garnett, uh, shoes uh, when he was with the Tim Rolves that. They made for the All Star game, and there's a special Timberwolves blue embroidery. I always think about, you know, if my f- house was on fire, what would I run out with? It would be, you know, the ghost face hat and the Kevin Garnett <laughs> shoes that I've never worn.
0: Screw your life's work on the computer. Exactly. Well, it's on the cloud. It's all backed yeah, up. Yeah, of They're course. Of course. Okay.
1: But when I think about, you know, aside from my family, what's sacred, it's kind of these things that. Yeah, you know there's a, a lot of other great work uh on sort of the psychology of perceived contagion and i think there's some sacred values have some contagion there's sort of a contagion effect where these are items that have touched or you know virtually touched very special people so they've been imbued with some uh sacred quality to them it's like you know probably um when you go to a, a hall of fame, the rock and roll hall of fame or football hall of fame, and you see, you know, this was the jersey worn by uh, Emmett Smith or the guitar that was Lou Reed's or whatever, that you just like, it, they seem priceless. These things seem priceless.
0: But I wonder if it has something to do know. with like putting a price on like a pleasurable memory. Putting a price on nostalgia. If you if you have these things that remind you of this special time yeah. in your life, well, there is no real price on remembering, you know, this moment in your childhood or something like that, and what and what that brings back to you. And and because a lot of the things that are sacred are also like uh, uh, religion and political policies that were instilled in us in our youth. Or whatever that we're i mean my
1: mind is is going with you know the study that that could test this i I love this idea because it's like, yeah, my wedding day would you know if you offer me millions of dollars to trade that you know I give you that experience and then you give me five million dollars, of course, I would say, no,
0: is it do you think your wife's listening to this yeah, right now? No, <laughs> All right. No, no. <laughs>
1: but you know that makes me wonder and i I believe there's research to to back this up, that you know, does paying people for things dampen the emotional experience that they get out of it? Do you know? I'm, I'm thinking about. I, I mentioned wedding, uh, not because my wife will, will ever listen to this, uh, but <laughs> because I had a a friend who was on one of these uh, reality shows uh, that's basically um, a wedding competition i guess that you know, there are uh five different weddings and each of the brides go to each other's weddings I, I i never saw the show but it's sort of like if your wedding wins for whatever reason you get um money and so you know does that money dampen her emotional experience That's of the wedding i i doubt it because i i believe the wedding was was spectacular um but it does make me wonder does paying people sort of reduce the emotional uh, boost that you get out of these special experiences. Now, Mm. certainly paying people to donate blood tends to have that effect. So um, people don't feel like they're doing something charitable. They don't get the warm glow uh, from donating blood if you pay them. If you give them a gift, it turns out, that's just fine. But paying people or you know one of my favorite studies was uh, there's this town in in Switzerland called Wolfenschiessen um, a few years ago the swiss government needed somewhere to dump a bunch of radioactive waste and they asked you know they were thinking about Wolfenschiessen they were going to have this public referendum on it and so some economists went to Wolfenschiessen they said they surveyed the residents and they said you no know, yes or no would you allow the swiss government to to uh, uh, dump uh radioactive waste in your backyard and uh, about 51% of people said yes and then they came back to the people uh, a couple weeks later I believe and they said okay now imagine that the government will pay each of you uh, to dump this waste uh, we'll pay you a yearly um, sort of compensation to dump this waste in your yard and now pretty much everyone said no so this is this very kind of interesting phenomenon where if you ask people for free, you get over 50% of people saying, yeah, sure, they can dump it. But once you say, you know, we'll pay you, what do people start saying? Well, they say, oh, I was going to do this out of good citizenship. Now this feels like a bribe. So I think when you're paying people, sometimes it takes the emotion out of the experience the positive emotion the nostalgia or the feeling of charity and citizenship and that can sort of uh uh de-sacrify uh these sacred experiences
0: that's interesting because i i actually you know when i started this podcast i because i've had a podcast before and i had to sell a bunch of ads uh, and i just hated it and mm, kind of yeah. cheapened the whole thing Interesting. And so i just even that word, on cheapen. This one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and i was like i'm not going to do ads on on this it's it, i didn't really think about it until now but it was cuz there's a million other reasons that are self beneficial sure, as far as sure. like hopefully building fans and sure. having people interested and in all of that and may, maybe possibly it would pay off financially to do this anyway but it did it felt like it was taking something away if i did that it was like this is like this is me going out and trying to you know, learn and find the meanings of life and, yeah. and that sort of thing. Yeah. And, um, and now that you say it, it's like, yeah, that would take something away if I was. So
1: speaking, it would, it would feel like a job.
0: Yeah. It would feel much yeah. more like a job. And I put way more work into <laughs> this than I, than I do anything that I get paid. For. Yeah. yeah. And I'm like going out of pocket. Right. This. Right. And, and speaking of which, so I have uh, a charity of the week. I have a guest, each uh-huh. week, mention a charity that they're into. Yeah. Do you have one in mind?
1: Yeah. Uh, my charity would be uh, Cure Violence, which is a Chicago based uh, charity, uh, formerly known as Ceasefire. It's a charity that I'm starting to get involved in. Uh, they do really interesting work uh, where the whole idea is to treat uh, violence like an infectious disease, uh, which involves um, sort of interrupting violence at its most sort of viral. Um, locations so there's a this is a multi-layered process that they're involved in including sort of sending uh, violence interrupters into places where violence is about to occur Um, they've done great work in uh, Chicago dealing with the major violence crisis on the south and west sides of the city and they're all over the world including in the Middle East and South Africa uh, doing great work so cure violence is uh my my charity and i think that's a great thing that you're doing getting uh letting people shout that out oh
0: absolutely and and i'll be posting on the website and everything and go and make sure and check that out Excellent. uh we have a we have a short amount of time left sure so i do need to ask you sure about robots yeah unfortunately i'm so sorry of but not, i do not want not to sorry. hear people love their phones yeah. Um yeah. Uh, what, what what's up with this? I, I Yeah. Um
1: so I, I should say that I started doing work on how people understand non-humans, uh, be it technology or animals or nature or God, uh with uh Nick Epley and with John Cassiopo, basically to explore the bounds uh, and the sort of limitless uh, uh, boundaries if that might be an oxymoron of social cognition. So it's this idea of how social are we? Are we so social that we even apply sort of social cognition and develop social relationships with things that aren't inherently social, namely our phones, our cars, our uh, apartments, uh, you know, articles of clothing, perhaps. Uh, and so we did a lot of work on this, and this got us into studying well, why do people humanize technology and um, you know it sounds like sort of this cute phenomenon where people always say, "Oh, I talked to my my computer uh, or I gave my car a name or i 'd make a sweater for my dog uh, but it 's really consequential it 's very consequential that we have these relationships with our phones uh, that we um when our car stalls, that we attempt to sort of uh, persuade it into behaving uh, appropriately like we would another human being. And we basically said that there's three primary reasons why people humanize non-humans. Um, one is simply that the idea of human is very salient to us. It's a sort of easy structure that comes to mind um, that works when we need to um, kind of makes sense of the world. Two uh, is that we uh, are motivated to understand things and be able to predict things behavior and to predict uh, and to c- sort of control or have a sense of mastery over uh, non-human behavior. And so uh, what do we do? Well, we treat things like us because we have a reasonable understanding of how humans work. So we apply that understanding to how Non-humans work, and then the third one, which I think really gets to your question, is that humans. You know, Aristotle called us social animals. We have this innate uh, desire to affiliate and connect with and belong with other people, and uh, we are constantly seeking social connection. When we don't quite get that social connection from other human beings, we'll find it in other sources, namely uh, these days technology or perhaps a religious. Uh, being or uh, our pets and you know what's interesting about this and where the research really needs to go is I'm going to kind of preempt a question that I I get asked a lot is okay we know that people sort of seek out relationships with non-humans when they're lonely or when they need connection but is it effective? Mm. Is it effective? And this is still a bit of an open question. Um, there's some work suggesting that, um, you know, elderly people derive some benefits from interacting with a pet, even a robotic pet or with a supernatural being. Um, there's, um, you know, well-documented benefits of pet ownership. Um, um, but Uh, you know what we think it's probably on a case-by-case basis so you know religious people probably get a lot of benefits of social connection with a god but atheists don't pet lovers will get benefits of connecting with a a pet but non-pet people won't and similarly people who like technology might get a lot out of interacting with a robot
0: whereas uh, technophobes would not I mean some of it's yeah. every night that i'm in a club now just oh. hey, as as God. the years go by yeah. there's just more and more phones oh, out God. they they can't put them down for an hour to oh, enjoy themselves they they just can't they whoever they're texting is just so important
1: so i'm i'm really guilty of this and you know i think the last i
0: actually i'm a bit guilty yeah, myself of some of this yeah
1: and i think so th- so that i think goes a little bit beyond the bounds of, of anthropomorphism i think right. you know to make you feel better they're probably uh texting people saying hey i'm at this awesome show and yeah. you know i i do think you know now i'm being a bit sociological there is this need to document right and tag where you are at all times and you know i get into disagreements with people about this a lot because i'm i'm pretty uh attached to my phone i think that these phones facilitate social connection uh i think social connection is a good thing uh you know that uh, logically then i think this attachment to our phones for communicative means has a lot of benefits, but then you know you can talk to Nick Epley about this. Um, he's done some work on on what gets lost when we communicate uh, through technology rather than face to face or what gets lost when we communicate via text versus voice um, there's a lot of, of new studies out there um, demonstrating what gets lost so um, you know again these are these are questions 21st century questions that We'll, dancer.
0: well, I just really thought it was so interesting this idea of needing to humanize a robot to, like, say, trust it more or whatever with with um, self driving cars, which is something I'm looking forward to, yeah, yeah, quite a bit. Other than you know maybe the car sickness that might go along <laughs> yeah. with it that people aren't prepared for and don't realize that that's going to happen, but yeah. But out outside of that, um, uh, the, you, you you wrote a bit about how. How how people uh, uh, will if you kind of personalize the car and mm-hmm. give it a name, mm-hmm. people will. Uh, what is it like? Trust. Trust it more.
1: It more. Yeah, <laughs> they they'll trust it in the sense that they will trust the car to perform its job. So you know, trust is a multifaceted term. The way so what we did was we showed that when people drive a very realistic uh, car simulator, and the car is autonomous, meaning a Controlling its own steering and braking and speed and all of that. Um, When you give it a name and a voice and a gender, uh, compared to when you don't, people start humanizing the car. And then when they humanize, and you want to give it your own gender
0: too, right?
1: This was interesting. Um, This is actually something we might want to test because in our study, the gender was always female. And I know there's a lot of new kind of GPS technology where you can select. You know, Snoop Dogg to Elvis Elvis to yeah, guide you where you need to go, and there might be some interesting gender differences there. Maybe maybe cross gender it, it, people prefer the most. Um, maybe same gender people prefer the most, but we do find and you know,
0: B is all over that one. Yeah, exactly,
1: <laughs> exactly, right. So you know, we do find though that humanization leads people to trust mm. the technology to do the job it's supposed to
0: do is this why people don't trust Stephen hawking <laughs> <laughs> he needs to update that voice right
1: Well that's really interesting up- right so um what happens to humans who have become mechanistic in, in any sort of way mm. um you know are they treated as more robotic now certainly
0: Look at trolling on the internet. Yeah. You, put, you make someone in, uh, internet profile and all of a sudden you don't treat them as humans anymore. It's, I mean, that's, that's really a great
1: point. I mean, we've always talked about this in terms of how people treat others who speak in a foreign accent mm-hmm. or in a foreign tongue. So those people are inherently less like us. Ergo, we treat them as slightly less human than us because we think of ourselves as the prototypical human. And therefore I think we tend to dehumanize those people a little bit. So yeah, I mean these examples of online avatars or, or Stephen Hawking who, you know, communicates through uh technology. Just
0: refuses to get a upgrade on that voice. Yeah. He's still yeah. using like on the other hand my GPS.
1: On the other hand, I think, you know, maybe that voice gives him some uh authority. Authority, oh. you know, maybe it gives him some intellect as well. So
0: like when I have a jetpack, obviously exactly. that's going to give me a lot of authority. Exactly. Right. Um, right. Uh, well, that's. Um, I, I guess that's all that I wanted. Uh, the cover. I just thought it was kind of interesting mm-hmm. that we. Um, there's a connection to uh, you probably have made this connection, but the the idea of of humans, we attribute kind of this lesser mind and. Yeah. And we almost uh, don't trust other humans as much as ourselves, or whatever. But yeah. and, and it's almost like we would trust them more. We think we need these rules and like these algorithms to uh, control yeah. um, people's behavior. But then when it comes to robots, yeah. we want to humanize yep. <laughs> robots Yeah. And make them like kind of imperfect, and then we trust them more.
1: Yeah. So you know. At an absolute level, when we see others as as having less mind than ourselves, we're only seeing them as having slightly lesser minds in, in many cases. I don't think we're fully putting them on, on the, you know, robot level yet. And when we humanize robots, I think we're not quite humanizing them to the same degree as another person, but it does create um some interesting inconsistencies with how we go through our daily lives when we're very uh, attached to to phones uh, as I am, and uh, may sort of uh, miss out on the minds of people that we uh, walk by on the street.
0: All right. All right. Well, thank you very much, Adam Waits, for thank being you. my guest. Thank you, guys, for listening. Uh, especially those of you that have been listening since episode number one. Um, thank you. I I hope uh, I hope you've been enjoying. The growth and progress of the show I hope by now you've um, uh, learned a few things that have maybe um, changed your perception of of the world a bit that's always a fun moment anytime I learn something new that kind of changes the way that I look at life and that's kind of what this podcast is meant to be about I mention it because next week's guest is uh, we we have a conversation about um, it, parasites, which is it's maybe one of the most mind blowing topics, um, especially when considering what makes us who we are and how we've evolved. Actually, there there's so much stuff um, uh, about how how parasites have shaped. Um, Every organism, but uh you know especially i'm a human, so i I'm especially interested in humanity really, really fascinating uh stuff um more uh, Marlene Zook, who is an author of multiple books and uh super interesting uh a lady and a very nice pleasant guest, she invited me we actually went back. She has several like new books out and everything, and I asked her pretty please if we could talk about one of her older books from 2007 just because it's on the subject that I um, knew a little bit uh, about already and, and knew how mind-blowing of topics it was. She wrote a book, Riddled with Life, which we explore a lot. I'm hoping to have her back on to talk about some of her other books. I'm actually hoping to have her back on to talk more about the book that we talked about riddled with life because we didn't even scratch the surface. It was, uh, just an incredible conversation. So, uh, I recommend, uh, it, you know, go and, uh, go on, go to the, your bookstore, or Amazon, especially if you have the Amazon prime or whatever and get, um, the riddled with life by marlene zook and uh you could start reading that and you'll be able to um you know uh, possibly appreciate the conversation a bit more uh next week but uh, otherwise uh, just just tune in um i promise next week is just uh, really really incredible um and uh thanks again to adam whites for being such a spectacular guest I, I know you guys enjoyed this episode as well thank you for listening are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we